Einstein, Feynman, Hawking. Certain names in physics just define their era. On this episode, we're talking to one of those people, somebody really of that magnitude. He's one of the inventors of string theory. That took off, you know, by now it's, um, well, it's history. He was a friend of the Nobel Prize winner and bongo player, Richard Feynman. Don't try to be Richard Feynman. You'll fail. And he wrote a bestseller, The Black Hole War, on his intellectual clash of the titans with the late Stephen Hawking. Stephen stuck to his guns, I stuck to my guns, and we had a standoff, you know, like at the OK Corral. My guest on this episode is none other than Leonard Susskind. From PRX, this is Orbital Path, a show about the cosmos and our place in it. I'm Michelle Fowler. Today, at 78, Leonard Susskind is still on the cutting edge of modern theoretical physics. His work is actually showing us a brand new way of thinking of reality, something called the holographic principle. But Susskind's journey to the dizzying heights of theoretical physics all started back home in the Bronx. At 16, he started following in his father's footsteps, earning a living as a plumber. We worked in the South Bronx, and the buildings in the South Bronx, many of them, were built in the 19th century, and they were ancient plumbing and ancient heating. The heating systems were rotting, and we would come and repair them, and my father got the idea that pretty soon these things were all going to have to be replaced. And so he decided he would be uh, in the business of replacing heating systems for big uh, tenement buildings. But the problem was he had a fifth grade education. He was very, very smart. He was an extremely good mechanic. But uh, he didn't uh, know a lot of the technical terminology about, uh, about heating and uh, thermodynamics and these kind of things. And so he said, you should go to college and find out what a BTU is, a British thermal unit. <laughs> so <laughs> I went to CCNY, to City College in New York, basically to become a mechanical engineer, just so I could go into business with my father. I was already married, I was already had a child, and I discovered in short order that I was not so excited about engineering. I dropped out of engineering. The engineering professor, he told me, you have a good mind for science, why don't you get into one of the sciences? So I looked around, and I didn't know one science from another. As far as I knew, science meant, you know, men in white lab coats with test tubes. So I first went to the chemistry department. They said, no, you've never taken any chemistry. You're two years into this already. You'll have to go to summer school. I can't go to summer school. I have to work. So I went to mathematics. Well, I was a good mathematician, but I realized somehow I was more interested in nature than I was in logic. So I finally went to the physics department, And the physics department said, yes, you have enough physics that you can probably do this with no extra time. And a physicist was born. (laughs) And one of my physics professors, a a person who became a lifelong friend, Harry Sudak, started to explain to me that physics wasn't just a dead subject that had been done 200 years ago by a bunch of dead white Englishmen, but that there were still lots and lots of fundamental physics problems and that you could become a physics professor and spend the rest of your life solving physics problems. And I, you know, I said, oh boy, that's really what I want to do. But I had to tell my father I wasn't going to be an engineer. I wasn't going to go into business with him. My father, you have to understand, he was very smart, but he was also very, very tough. Frankly, I was a little bit afraid of him. I got in my car with my wife and my child and drove over to my father's place. 
He was down in the basement preparing for the next day's work, cutting pipe, and I, I just blurted it out. Benny, his name was Ben, I'm not going to be an engineer. And he looked at me, and he said, what the hell are you going to be, a ballerina? And I said, no, not a ballerina. I'm going to be a physicist. And he said, a physicist? What the hell is a physicist? And at that point, I was beginning to get very worried. But more or less accidentally, I said the right thing. I said, a physicist like Einstein. To Jews in New York at that time, everybody knew the name Einstein. Everybody worshipped Einstein, even if they hadn't the vaguest idea of what he did. And my father looked at me and he said, are you any good at this? And I said, yes, I, I think I'm really good at it. And he thought for a little bit and then said, okay, you're going to be Einstein. After that, physics was the thing that he wanted me to do. He tried to learn about it. He tried to learn a little bit of mathematics, a little bit of physics. But from there on, this is what I was going to do. You, you were friends with Richard Feynman. You know, this, this, this person that had this, this sense of fun and, and this, this swagger. And, and you know, he, liked, he loved the, the games and the competition and, and sort of running head forward into a problem. Can you tell me some of your, uh, you know, some of your memories of Feynman? Let me tell you what I think the biggest lesson I may have learned from my friend Richard. The first reaction that a lot of young people have when they met him was, oh, I want to be like Feynman. It was, of course, the first reaction I had also. I learned over the years, don't try to be somebody else. Uh, and in particular, don't try to be Richard Feynman. You'll, won't, you'll fail. <laughs> it seems to me that you've been present a number of times when our, our whole nature of reality kind of shifted. You know, and, and one, of course, is some of the stuff that Richard Feynman did. And then you came along with, with string theory. You know, yeah. what does it feel like to kind of get a sense that the whole idea about what reality is, is about to change? That, that's been part of your career. Yeah, it's a, it's a very heady feeling. Now, this has happened to me, as you said, a number of times. And each time I have the same experience thinking, oh my God, I'm the only one in the world who knows this. I am literally the only person on the planet Earth who knows that this is the way things work? Well, each and every time it turned out I wasn't quite the only one who knew it. <laughs> there was always somebody else who had uh, basically the same idea at the same time. With the invention of string theory, it turned out to be a very, very famous, very senior Japanese physicist living in the United States, Yoichiro Nembu. And Nembu was really one of the great physicists in the world. And essentially exactly at the same time that I had these ideas about how elementary particles would be replaced by these one-dimensional strings, Nembu had exactly the same idea. In one sense, it was a letdown that I really wasn't the only one. On the other hand, it was enormously uplifting to know that I was in the same class with Yochiro Nembu. You know, give us the 30,000-foot look at, at what string theory is. You know, how, how, do you start, how do you start to describe you know, what, what it is, that your contribution to string theory? Okay, so the idea didn't come from nowhere. Ideas never come from nowhere. They always come from somebody else before you who had related ideas which evolve into something new. An Italian physicist, young Italian physicist, even younger than me at the time, Gabriele Veneziano, had written down a formula. It was just a mathematical formula describing the scattering of two hadrons. 
Hadrons are protons and neutrons, and the mesons, which are the glue which holds protons and neutrons together in the nucleus. Now, don't worry too much about what that means. It was just a mathematical formula with no physical picture of what it was about, but it did dis successfully describe some data about the, uh, what happens in the laboratory when hadrons collide with each other and go off and uh, produce other particles. At some point, I was visited by a, another physicist who knew Veneziano very well and told me about his work. I didn't understand a word of it except to write down the formula that he had written uh, on the blackboard. I copied it down in my notebook, and I said, this thing is so simple, there must be some picture, some physical understanding of what it's about. I went home and spent a couple of months, I think, figuring out what this thing was. Then I remember one afternoon in the attic in my house in New Jersey, I discovered that what we were talking about was not just some abstract mathematical formula, but it was the physical theory, physical description of interacting, colliding little rubber bands. It was a description of quantum mechanical vibrating elastic strings colliding with each other. I did not call it string theory at that time, 1969. I called it rubber band theory. Mm. But it wasn't until a number of years later that various people, John Schwartz and some of his collaborators and another Japanese physicist named Yonea, realized that the same formulas could be applied not just to hadrons, but to the most fundamental elementary particles. And once that was understood, it suddenly became a much deeper and more far-reaching theory having to do with gravitation. That took off, you know, by now it's, um, well, it's history. I think a lot of people have been told that there's a conflict between some of the, you know, the basic areas of physics, those being quantum mechanics yeah. and general relativity. And, and then, you know, we need some sort of theory of gravity that actually can, can bring those two together. So how, how does string theory help to give us a view of gravity that, that, that brings these two arguing parts of physics together? It has provided a, um, a, a certainty, if you like, that gravity and quantum mechanics can fit together and do fit together. Even if it didn't explain exactly how, it was sort of what mathematicians sometimes call an existence proof. It provided enough rigorous examples that we could be certain of that. And now you can try to unravel it, uh, unravel the strings, uh, pun unintended. You can unravel it and try to see how it is that gravity and quantum mechanics are fitting together. And that's, that's what's going on today. It's still what's going on today. I think we're beginning to see that gravity and quantum mechanics, far from being inconsistent with each other, are almost the same thing. That they're so closely knit together that you really can't have one without the other. This is very exciting. Most of the work is being done by people a good deal younger than myself. But it's exciting to see it come to some sort of fruition. Even though I think we're still very far from understanding the entire universe uh, as a quantum mechanical gravitating system. So one of the things you mentioned 
you mentioned this idea of quantum mechanics and gravity really having to be you know, pretty much the same thing. Right. And uh, you have this wonderful story about an argument that actually lasted you know, more than a decade with, with Stephen Hawking about black holes. Yeah. And some of these, some of the things that fell out of this argument you know, are really leading us to like what you said, this conclusion that quantum mechanics, string theory, gravity really are all wrapped up very, very tightly together. It all does go back to Hawking. It was ex expected that black holes were absolutely cold, frozen objects with no heat to them, whatever. There were two people. One was Jacob Bekenstein, who was probably less famous than Stephen Hawking. Bekenstein was the first one to realize that black holes had what is called entropy, heat, if you like. They have a degree of heat or warmth to them that was unexpected. Stephen Hawking looked at this, who he was a great expert at black holes. Stephen looked at this and said, this can't be right. Everybody knows that black holes are dead cold objects and uh, they have no heat. And he thought about it and thought about it and eventually realized through his own very, very subtle and beautiful calculations that black holes would have heat, they would have temperature, and not only that, because they had temperature, they would glow. They would glow in the dark, so to speak, give off photons, and the process of giving off photons give off energy, and therefore the black holes would shrink and disappear eventually. This was the brilliance of Stephen Hawking. It was one of the most uh, seminal things that's happened in physics since Newton. So let's go sort of to what the heart of the argument yeah. was, the disagreement between uh, you and Stephen Hawking. So, you know, we, we keep telling the general public this over and over again, that, that black holes are bottomless pits. You know, no, no information mm -hmm. comes out. Everything goes in, mm -hmm. nothing comes out. And then, you know, you're saying that you know, Stephen Hawking realized that black holes radiate and, and they eventually evaporate right. away. But there really isn't any information about what fell into the black hole that, you know, is in that radiation. It basically radiates as like a, a black body, just something that's warm. And then, then you come along and say, aha, there must be some way that that radiation is actually preserving something about the information about what fell in. Is, is that right? Yes, that, 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 that's exactly correct. But of course, even when, if you heat up the, the bathtub full of water so that it's full of entropy, and then you allow it to evaporate, molecules go off, you would think, well, all of that information that was in the bathtub full of hot water just disappears when it evaporates, but it doesn't. It's preserved in the uh, products of evaporation. The water molecules that, uh, that travel off into space, if you could recapture them and examine them in ultimate detail, you could find out exactly how the bathtub had been filled up, exactly what the molecules were doing when you filled up the bathtub. So the information never really disappears. So you're saying that if I fall into a black hole, somehow, mm -hmm. bit by bit, that information gets back out into the universe. That would be the case for any system which preserves the laws of quantum mechanics. My own sense of it was that the quantum mechanical laws were not something you can play around with. They were not up for grabs. Incidentally, I wasn't the only one. My friend Gerard Etuft, the famous Dutch physicist, had exactly the same views. Our feeling was that you can't play fast and loose and there must be a way out of Hawking's claim that information disappears. And the obvious way out is just to say, yes, you fall into the black hole and your bits, those things are just returned into the atmosphere, into space. But Stephen stuck to his guns and he said, no, there's no way that anything that falls into a black hole can get out. And in fact, there was a paradox there. 
things do fall into a black hole, once you're behind the black hole, you cannot get out without exceeding the speed of light. You can't exceed the speed of light, and so anything that falls in is trapped. On the other hand, quantum mechanics says, no, it must come out. And so there was a dilemma there. There was a real dilemma and a real paradox. Stephen stuck to his guns, I stuck to my guns, and we had a standoff, you know, like at the OK Corral for a period of 10 or 15 years. We, <laughs> neither one of us knew how to convince the other. So what happened? How did the logjam break? OK, I think the thing that really broke the logjam had to do with string theory. Because there were these string theories, which were very mathematically rigorous, contained in their description gravity and therefore black holes, but were also completely consistent with quantum mechanics, anybody who had studied string theory became pretty rapidly convinced that, that Stephen had to be wrong, but it was still unclear why. And eventually, the idea of the holographic principle took hold. This was something that I, and uh, even a little earlier, Etuft, had put forward, that the information that falls into anything, anywhere in the universe, is really stored far away. One way of thinking about it is the things that fall into a black hole are really stored at the horizon of the black hole in a kind of hologram, so that when the black hole evaporates, the bits stored in the hologram are the things that get emitted into the Hawking radiation. The holographic principle sort of did untie some of the knot, and I think that the Tuft and I were pretty happy with that idea. The rest of the community looked at us and said, what are you talking about? How on earth can the uh, three-dimensional information inside a black hole be stored on the two-dimensional surface at the boundary of the black hole? And even more, we even claimed that all the information in the universe was really described at the boundary of the universe. This sounded very, very bizarre. I do remember one older physicist coming to me and saying, you know, Suskin, you and the Tuft used to be good physicists, but I think you've lost your marbles. I won't tell you who that physicist was. <laughs> the young physicist Juan Meldesena, he put together a very, very precise mathematical version of the holographic principle, so precise that it, it really couldn't be questioned by anybody who had followed the developments up to that point. And so it was Maldesena's version of the holographic principle that I think really untied the knot in the end. It's a pretty amazing idea. You know, I mean, I always get asked the question, so, so what happens if you fall into a black hole? What do you experience? You know, and does, does anything ever fall into a black hole? Right. And, and now there's this idea that, in fact, there may be a couple different answers to that, but they're all sort of yeah. right at the same time. That, you know, as, as you fall into a black hole, the information, every little bit of information about you is somehow stored in this two-dimensional surface, yeah. kind of the shell. And yet at the same time, things do fall into a black hole. I mean, I mean, how, yeah. how, how do you explain that to people? <laughs> okay, I tell them to read a good book on quantum mechanics. <laughs> in quantum mechanics, there is always this aspect of duality that two apparently inconsistent descriptions of the same thing seem to make, are necessarily both consistent, that waves and particles can be the same thing. The idea that you uh, can know the velocity of a particle or the position of a particle, but you can't know both. 
This was one of these strange quantum mechanical dualities where two apparently inconsistent descriptions of the same thing are both true, but when you really push hard, you discover that there really is no contradiction because any attempt to confirm one description will destroy your knowledge that would allow you to confirm the other description. It's called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So this was, uh, this was just quantum mechanics written large. And I think now that's essentially the story. Quantum mechanics allows two apparently different descriptions to coexist. And the apparently here means that you thinking about it as a classical human being simply cannot put yourself in the position of the quantum mechanical system and so you constantly get confused and think that one description necessarily precludes the other when it doesn't. But this is, uh, this is heady stuff. You know, to really understand it, I think you have, to, uh, you have to read my books on quantum mechanics. How about that? <laughs> and, you know, there's some point at which you really do have to give up trying to explain things by analogy and by metaphor and simply say, okay, look, the real truth is this mathematical construction called quantum mechanics. Go and learn it. We really live in a universe where, like you said, there's a duality. You know, things things yeah. happen that, that don't really right. match our common sense. Yeah. And, and, the, and the thing about the idea that all this information in the universe is contained in this, this, this two-dimensional way. I mean, a, a lot of people have a huge misconception about what we mean when we say hologram. I, I, I'm constantly oh. trying to, like, whack-a-mole, you know, get people not to think this, that we mean that it's artificial, that this is something like, you know, in the matrix. Instead, yeah. it's about how the universe stores information. And yeah, it, it exactly. seems to be that, like, when you're around a black hole, you're, you have this, sh this shell of information about everything that's inside. It's a two-dimensional surface, and yet it has all of the information about the three-dimensional reality. And the, the incredible thing is that now we're extending that, that it's not just black holes are like that, but maybe our, our whole universe can be described like that. Yes. What I would say about the whole universe is understanding how what we know about cosmology fits together with these holographic ideas is very, very much still a work in progress. It is not understood in any complete way. And so there's plenty which isn't understood. We've understood a narrow little piece of it concerning black holes and in particular kinds of universes and I don't think we are yet close to really understanding our own universe and how it is encoded holographically. And I think maybe the revolution is yet to happen. So I think, to me, that's the best part, right? I mean, we're yeah. finding ourselves in this incredibly exciting time. You know, I, th I think about the times before, you know, the, the, the foundation of quantum mechanics, you know, before Einstein, before, you know, general relativity. And then all of a sudden, right. it, it kind of crystallized. It fell together. Yes, uh, it does feel like those kind of times, that something is about to burst forth. In some sense, I think we're very far from it, but not necessarily in time. Tomorrow morning, I could wake up and some bright young physicist that I never heard of uh, working in some patent office someplace may write down the whole thing. But the point is it's going to involve new ideas that we haven't yet had. So it is very exciting, extremely exciting. That's theoretical physicist Leonard Susskind. 
I spoke to Suskin from his office at Stanford University, where he is director of the Stanford Institute for Theoretical Physics. It seems like we really are on the cusp of a brand new understanding, not only just of our universe, but of the whole nature of reality. A hundred years ago, things shifted entirely when we discovered quantum mechanics and general relativity. We really had to lose the idea that our human senses, that our human logic, really had anything to do with the way the universe really worked. Instead, we had to follow where our mathematics went, where the theories of physics went, and we're there again. Perhaps the universe turns out to be two-dimensional, something like a hologram, where all of the information everywhere, for every point in space and time, is somehow coded on a two-dimensional surface. It seems preposterous, but we've been led by the mathematics and physics before, and they've turned out to be true. It may be that we're in for another seismic shift in understanding what we mean by reality. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Orbital Path from PRX. We'd love for you to check out more episodes at orbital.prx.org. Support for Orbital Path is provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More at sloan.org. Orbital Path is produced by David Schulman. Our editor is Andrea Mustaine. Special thanks to John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler at PRX. I'm Michelle Thaller. At the end of our conversation, I asked Leonard Susskind, did he have anything he wanted to add? Something else he really wanted to talk about? He did. I have two gripes. Okay. The first one of them, I'm a person who came from an immigrant background. I was extremely lucky. The city of New York educated me in pretty good schools. It sent me to college. I was the beneficiary of some extremely generous thoughts on the part of an establishment that still cared about people. I would very much love to see those days come back when an immigrant family could hope to send their children to college and have them become scientists or whatever else without the threat of what the political system is doing to them today. Well, I mean, we mentioned Albert Einstein. You know, you look back in history and you think this person, you know, would have been put in a concentration camp by the Nazis. Right. My mother came here as a war refugee. Yeah. And it, it, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm having a huge amount of trouble parsing what's going on in our society right now. Yeah. For me, it's a source of infinite sadness that the United States is going in some direction that I don't recognize. Okay, the other gripe I have is against mathematics. Not mathematics. I love mathematics. <laughs> I hate what the mathematicians, in particular goddamn f mathematicians, have done to mathematics. They've turned it into a bloodless, boring subject full of math speak. If you go onto the internet and you try to find out what some mathematical idea is by going to Wikipedia, you'll get math speak and uh, nothing that's comprehensible to a human being. <laughs> now, all of my mathematical friends, <laughs> I didn't really mean that. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs>